Welcome to the Business of Beverages, drinks industry insights with makers, marketeers, and mischief. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Beverages. I'm your host, Will Keating, and I'm joined once again by Mr. Portrick Foxy Fox. Hello again, Will. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, can't can't really complain. Uh, I think I told you I was on a stag party last weekend. Um, still kind of semi-recovered from that. What, what have you been up to? <laughs> Uh, I have been putting the shape on our trip to Leuven. So I spent a lot of time in the last week confirming speakers and details for what's going to be happening in late May in Leuven for our Business of Beverages Roadshow. Oh, this sounds very exciting. It is, and all will be revealed. Uh, so early this week, there is going to be an email going out to all those who have emailed us at bizbevpod at gmail.com to express an interest in coming to Leuven with us. So this is going to be a two-day event, which I can absolutely guarantee you is going to knock your socks off. It's going to be all about Belgian beer culture, but with an international flavor. And we will be doing brewery visits, brasserie visits. We'll be doing guest interviews and live podcast recordings. It will be a fantabulous time for all. But what about those listeners who haven't emailed us yet, but are now thinking, ooh, maybe I should have emailed. What can they do? Well, they can email us and say, hey, can you give me some information on the dates, the timings, the prices? So we would love to hear from anybody who wants to speak, wants to sponsor, or attend with us. So if you just drop us a line, bizbevpod at gmail.com, or drop me a line on LinkedIn, or slip into the DMs in Instagram, and you can get Foxy, or you'll get myself. So we'd love to hear from you. Oh, so you have been very busy curating. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I've been curating an event, but I'm delighted to say that actually for our main interview, we have a guest who I have been pursuing diligently for a whole number of months, at least uh, seven or eight months, trying to get her on the podcast. I'm delighted that at last we have Rebecca Jago, who is Managing Director of Last Drop Distillers. And the reason I said curating is because that is essentially what Last Drop Distillers do. They curate liquids from elsewhere and put them into the beautiful packaged uh, bottles and cases to sell. Yeah. Uh, so Rebecca will obviously tell her story and the story of how the company got founded by her father and her, her, uh, her father's partner. But essentially, they are, are, in a way, the world's sexiest independent bottlers, is the way I might put it. They curate and collect spirits and bottle them, but spirits that are highly, highly unusual. The word she uses repeatedly is remarkable. But essentially, she goes in to distilleries that either have closed or or have the very, very last cask of a particular spirit, and they will persuade the distillery to sell it to them, and they will bottle it independently. So the reason that I was interested initially in Rebecca was because she was recommended to me by a friend of yours and mine, George Roberts, and George said, she's like the Indiana Jones of the spirits world. So she goes in when everything around is is in a state of chaos and she'll find the one gem, the one precious liquid, and she'll be able to extract it out from underneath the nose but with the agreement of whoever has distilled it and then we'll do it as an independent release. Uh, I, I don't think there's a better introduction to the interview than that, the Indiana Jones of beverages. Uh, Rebecca, it's wonderful to talk to you at last. Uh, we have been trying to get on a call to do a, an interview for a very long time, and I'm absolutely delighted that you could join us. Can you tell us, please, what do you do? So my name is Rebecca Jago, and I am incredibly lucky to be the managing director of The Last Drop Distillers. And that has come about because my father and his longtime colleague started a company in later life. And I, I think I'm here because I'm the daughter of the founder, largely, that makes it sound like luck, but it, and I'm sure serendipity has a huge part to play. But in reality, the last drop distillers have gone from strength to strength. But can you tell people very quickly, what do you guys do, which is different to other distillers? Okay, so I think the first thing I need to say is that our name is a slight misnomer, because as things stand, we're not actually distillers. And in 2020-21, we started on a massive project to not to rebrand the business, but to try and redefine what it is we do. And we came up with this statement that is the last drop distillers are curators of the world's most remarkable spirits. And I think the use of the word remarkable is really interesting and apposite because it's about it's not about the oldest or the most expensive or that really 
impossible term, the best, because there is no such thing, but about truly fascinating spirits that have a story to tell. And the word curators is really there to try and underline the fact that we see ourselves as friends and advisors, if you like, to to our customers, who we hope are also our friends. So that in the same way as an art curator might recommend a piece of art, or your best friend might recommend a book. It's that sense of, if you like whiskey, but you don't drink bourbon, we'd love you to try this because we think you'll love it. So it's a way of sort of looking at a whole panoply of spirits categories. So we've bottled Scotch whiskey in all its forms, bourbon, rum, port, lots of cognac. And I, I, so I suppose what sets us apart is, is the breadth of what we do in a very, very small way. So it's very small bottlings of very old and delightful spirits. And how do you find those spirits? Well, um, in a whole range of ways. So I think to, to go back to the beginning of the business, when James and my dad started the business, they both spent their entire careers in the drinks industry, mainly working together. And so, so when they, they had this sort of retirement idea, they went off to Scotland and really talked to, to everybody they knew there, which was a huge number of people, and, and explained that they'd had this idea. They, they'd created a company called The Last Drop, and they wanted to bottle some wonderful old Scotch whisky. Now, now obviously, independent bottlers have existed almost as long as the Scotch whisky industry has existed. So this in itself is nothing new, but they had no preconceptions. And equally, they didn't have a warehouse full of maturing barrels. So they were quite dependent on the the goodwill of the people they knew. And what they eventually alighted on was a a few barrels of a very old blended Scotch whisky. And that became the first release. So that that in itself is quite a, a departure, if you like, if you think about the big players in independent bottling, they're mainly focused on single malts and some single grains. And I think what James and my dad were trying to do was to celebrate the pleasure and the uniqueness of the industry and to say, we're not, we're no longer part of the big business side of the industry. We're too old, effectively, we're too old men who want to do something partly to prove they could and partly just to sort of identify something fascinating and celebrate it. So they started with a blended Scotch whiskey. And I, I genuinely think that when they started the business, it was not, it was not intended to be a long-term business. It was a, an idea. My dad was 82 and James was 65 and they both just retired. And I think they, they weren't ready to hang up their boots, if you like. So it was, let's see if we can do this. Find something super delicious, very old, unusual. And James then basically went out and sold it, bottle by bottle, around the world. He, he likes to talk about going back to flying zoo class um, because they had no, no budget. They had no... <laughs> They had no budget at all, and I th- I think it was expe- it was anticipated that it, it would be a one off. They would find this whiskey, they'd put it in a bottle, they'd sell it, and then they'd go back to whatever else they were going to do. But somebody at some stage said, "What are you going to do next?" And here, you know, this, this is what I, I I talk about a lot. This is where everything sort of changed slightly because a there was a next, if you like, what what happens next, but also. My dad went off to Cognac, where he had spent some time working with Mert Hennessy, and there, there, and found an old Cognac, and that became their second release. So immediately, in this very, very, I mean, minuscule part of the business, they've done something different, because instead of focusing on Scotch, they've gone Scotch whiskey, and what's next? Cognac. And... So, and then the first few releases were all either Scotch or Cognac, but it set the bar, which says we're a spirits business, not a Scotch whiskey business, and that we're open to anything which we feel fits the bill. And the bill is as simple as, is it delicious? Is it remarkable? Does it taste, does, does it taste belie its age, if you like? And that that is definitely part of our sort of, parameters of quality is are, are you surprised by 
how bright and fresh something tastes, even though it's 50 or 70, or in the case of our ports, 150 years old, is part of the pleasure in tasting it, a sort of wonder that something can be so old, but so, so fresh. Like when your your dad and James founded the company, they had a long history experience in the spirits industry. How are they perceived within the industry of going and doing this at, uh, I think, 82 and, and 65 or whatever it may have been? Um, I think with a certain amount of benevolence. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I mean, James and my dad, although they worked together for really most of their careers, from when James arrived in the UK in 1977, they were very different characters. James is a consummate salesman and marketeer. He's a brilliant front man, and he, he has this amazing ability to hold a room. Now, I'm not saying my dad couldn't have done that, but it wasn't his thing. He was very much a sort of ideas man, liked to be sitting in his office with his feet on the desk, listening to music and having ideas. Not opposites attract, but a super complementary relationship, which lasted until my, my dad died. And I think what they had, and James particularly, was an immense amount of goodwill. So... You know, this is a guy in his 60s who has been a real force for change in the industry in in incalculable ways. Uh, You know, he was one of the the group of people who set up the Keepers of the Quake. He's just done a huge amount of good. So, So I think if you set out on a journey and say, I've decided to set up a little company and we'd like to find a, a gem somewhere, goodwill goes an awfully long way. If If you're not a threat... And, and, of course, two, two old men with an idea is not really very threatening <laughs> to the, the big guys in the industry. Then, then they're probably much more inclined to be helpful and to help find something that maybe doesn't, doesn't have a natural place in, in your long-term release plan. And that, that, I think, is exactly what the first parcel was. It was a, a collection of old barrels of an old blend that could easily have been blended away, but equally easily stood up on their own merit for James and my dad. And my dad said, you know, until the day he died, that, that the 1960 blend, which became our first release, was the best whiskey he ever tasted. And certainly he tasted a lot of whiskey. So fl- flashing forward six years after your dad and James founded the, the Last Drop Distillers, you and James's daughter joined the company. We did. did. Did you kind of keep the same roles? Do you sit in the office with the feet up as uh, Beanie goes out and, and does the hard yards <laughs> of the selling? Um, I, I think to begin with, probably not far off. I don't think I was quite sitting with my feet up because when we joined the business, I think it was very much to to try and put a bit of structure into what was a lovely idea and was it was a very ad hoc business if you like you know there was no there was no business plan there was no office there was no release plan so when Beanie and I met and we'd never met and joined the business it was shall we try and help our customers to sell better by saying this is what we're going to be doing and when we're going to be doing it and give them maybe give them a bit more support so Beanie's background is very much marketing she'd been with um L'Oreal and Chanel and then she'd set up a a marketing business in Hong Kong and my background had been very much design so we both come from the creative side of the business so so when we joined we both had to put up our socks and work out how the operational side worked as well so I think we just put all the hats on between us and um, it was very much a journey of discovery. To go back to your initial point where you said you were lucky, you were lucky, but there's an enormous amount of hard work that must come from managing that transition. Because for me, you use, use the word remarkable, it's, it's the title of your podcast, but also it's in your mission statement. But it's remarkable that there was such a seamless and successful transition of the company really through the generations, but also through the sexes and also through the uh, experience gap, if you will. So you have... A, a very distinct generational gap, obviously, because it's your father's passing on, but not just passing on, but passing on to their daughters and passing on to their daughters who are not coming from the industry and who do not have that wealth of experience that, that James and Tom had. Uh, how did you find that transition? Was it was it simple? 
Uh, I, I think as I, you know, sit here in 2022, and and I I absolutely recognise how much I've learned over the years since since I joined full time. I mean, I think Beanie and I were both separately. Beanie was in Hong Kong helping out where we could, so I very much helped them out with the packaging side of things because that was my background. Beanie, whenever James was on his trips to China and. Hong Kong and so on, which has always been a really big market for us, would always help help out with the marketing and marketing collateral and so on. So we both knew what they were doing, but I, I think, as you rightly say, neither of us had 40 years plus of experience in the drinks industry. So we didn't take over from, I think it's really important to say we, we joined them. And then I suppose, by whether it's by osmosis or by asking questions, and partly I think because it was our dad's, being able to ask anything, you know, that's the big advantage, isn't it? Is it's not your mm-hmm. boss. It may be your boss, but it's also your dad. And you can ask and you don't you don't feel quite the same about making a fool of yourself. And I think that's a huge, huge difference. Both of them are incredibly generous with their time and their knowledge, with contacts, with experience. And I think that is probably the single thing that has made the biggest difference. On one of our previous podcasts, we we did an interview with uh, a vineyard, which is very much family owned and the family dynamics that sit around the the table at the end of the day discussing business. Last Drop is actually almost two families. Uh, So with yourself and Beanie, did you have very different styles when you when you want to go and search for for an, uh, the next blend the next mix or do you ha- kind of have a similar kind of taste palette uh that's quite difficult to answer because i think neither of us was particularly well i still wouldn't claim to be an expert in the world of spirits so so i think that we both accepted that we didn't know a great deal although we've obviously both grown up with with parents in the drinks industry and learned from what they'd already released, learned from what they said, tasted with as open a mind as we could. And actually, so no, I, I wouldn't say we had dissimilar palettes. We were both incredibly open to learning. And that, I think, is the most important thing. And although, you know, we're, we're very different people, we're incredibly good friends. But the first time we went to Scotland on our own, we picked up the hire car at Edinburgh Airport, got in the car, Beanie was driving, and I put Michael Bublé on the stereo, and that was it, really. Friends for life. <laughs> <laughs> and, still, and still would be, you know, I don't think we could ever do anything but listen to Michael Bublé in the car. <laughs> uh, your friendship must be uh, strong if you've managed to survive that. Uh, so, can I ask, though, I, I do wonder... We've, we've had a number of people on the podcast where we talk about the challenges that women sometimes face in an in industry, which is changing, but is still very male dominated. And in particular, in the industry that you've gone into where that rarefied or that n- those niche products, that very high end, I, I won't use the term super premium because I think it's been devalued, but that remarkable sourcing of spirits is still done through through a, a network and through personal contacts and the vast majority of, of the people who hold the keys to those safes as it were are, are men mm. did you ever feel that your approach was different because you were women or did it help or hinder you do you think mm, that's uh, well so i don't think we were ever hindered by being female but i think to be fair that's probably partly because of the names we came with you know mm-hmm. so uh, and is that embarrassing? Does that matter, really? I, 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 we said before we started recording that I, I wouldn't give up my name for anything because I, I love my name, but also it's my dad's name. And I think Beanie would, would feel and say something very similar, which is that we were proud to be their daughters, and it, there's nothing like a name to, to open a door, is there? So, <laughs> So, so you, we were never going to, I don't think anybody was ever going to not open the door, which is a massive help, isn't it? And therefore, I think some of the potential barriers to to our networking or asking questions or, or sourcing were, were not there, really, because of who we were. 
And that's what I meant at the top of the conversation when we talked about why I'm here. I, I'm not being um, falsely modest. I'm, I'm sure I'm doing a you know reasonable job of what I do, but I wouldn't be here without without James, my dad. And and I think it would be wrong not to acknowledge that. How is it that you you find customers? So we we talked about how you you go about you find liquids and and uh, whiskies, uh, rums, cognacs, whatever they might be, ports. But how do you how do you go find customers? So you talked about you know James having to having to fly economy and going out <laughs> and uh, beating the the track again, putting his sales skills to the test. But where are those customers and? Is there a common thread amongst those customers that you identify and say, well, they're the kind of people who are going to be interested in, in our spirits? So so what do people want from the last drop? I think that varies. You can't say there's a single customer type. You can say what you, you'd like your customer to be, but people have a, a habit of not conforming, don't they, to what you want them to be. So I, I think if I had to paint a picture of our ideal customer, it's somebody who is going to enjoy and celebrate the spirits in the way that we do. And whilst bottles costing thousands of pounds are not your everyday tipple, maybe, there's a place and an occasion to open a bottle and to enjoy it with your friends. And I think for me, the most important thing about what I do is that when I introduce a spirit and talk about how we found it and why we bottled it, what I'm hoping is that is not that somebody will go off and tell that story, but that they will take that as a starting point to make their own, tell their own stories, make their own memories, and one day send me an email telling me where they were when they opened their bottle, and then you feel you've really done your job. That's wonderful and, and, and very evocative as well. But can I ask, you, you mentioned there the challenge of selling to people who will actually consume the spirit rather than collect it or um, perhaps treat it as an investment uh, is that a very live challenge to try and f- control the speculators the flippers the scalpers if you will uh, yes i think it's an enormous challenge and it's not just one for us it's one for everybody is is we've we've all seen what has happened to the, the scotch whiskey industry particularly but to all in all spirits categories and bourbon is of course another one that's unbelievably heated and febrile at the moment you can only stay true to your own principles and i i can't legislate we can't legislate for who is going to buy our bottles because we do we we do sell some direct but we sell mainly through retailers and and other customers so we are reliant on the messaging we create but also uh, we we you can't you cannot legislate for what people will do with the bottles they buy you can stay true to your own principles and say, I believe, as you just said, Will, that spirits, since the day that the first person distilled a spirit, nobody ever did it for investment. I mean, yes, to make money, if you're a producer, you don't do it. I mean, partly you do it for the love of it, but you also do it because you've got to earn a living. But there's a huge difference between making a living and keeping things for the the day that might never come when suddenly you find you've made a thousand dollars or whatever it is. And I had a really interesting conversation with a journalist the other day. Uh, so he, he mainly writes about wine, but he'd been invited to a, a tasting, an online tasting with a, a winemaker from a very famous wine company in Italy. So a Brunello di Montalcino. So quite a, a valuable, you know, well-known vineyard and they all the the people on this call which was i think for press had been sent a bottle of wine Mm. and they were getting the opportunity to have a tasting with the owner of the the winemaker the owner of the the vineyard and this guy i was talking to said he'd opened his bottle because for him the experience of drinking a glass of wine with the man who'd made it the grandson of the the man who founded the company was an incomparable experience. But after the call had finished, you know, he was getting messages from people saying, you didn't open that bottle, did you? Don't you know it's about 700 euros or whatever? And that, that just perfectly illustrates how I feel about whether you should drink or keep, which is 
you can't you you can't take it with you you know i mean that's that's the ultimate isn't it take open your bottle when it's the right moment drink it with friends drink it with your loved ones and take all the memories of the moment you you did that because they're infinitely more valuable than the profit you might make yeah, you, you mentioned about like memories and stories like you said it is far better than the, the what it, profit you may or may not turn and with the way the last drop distiller sources liquids and and it looks at barrels and things like that like you must have a couple of decent stories yourself from tastings and, and things over the years is, is there anyone that kind of sticks out in particular for you well i mean i think the, the greatest stories we have are probably um some of the discoveries and i think it's also important to say that not every bottling from the last drop is is has as much romance as the one I'm about to tell you. And I think it's also very important to be clear that we all know, for example, the Scotch whisky industry is incredibly highly regulated. There is no such thing as a hidden barrel of Scotch whisky because HMRC know where they all are. And, <laughs> and, and, but but what we, we can say is that it's what's inside that is the subject of the discovery, if you like. And that goes back to the very the very beginning of the business is they the barrels of whiskey were not hidden, but the quality of the liquid inside was was a surprise to everybody. And I think mm-hmm. that is an entirely valid definition of the word discovery in in the context of what we're doing. But we were incredibly fortunate when in fact when I went to visit the Sazerac team in Cognac and was sitting with the the wonderful Clive, Clive Carpenter, who is, in spite of being a very English man, has spent his entire career in, in the cognac, in the world of cognac. And he, he and I were just sitting, getting to know each other, and he said, well, what is it you're looking for, Rebecca? And I said, I don't know, just anything that, that you think fits the bill for truly fascinating, remarkable spirits. And the next morning he picked me up from my hotel and said, we're off for a tasting. So this is sort of 8.39 in the morning. We went to a distillery owned by somebody he knew and there was the most incredible tasting set up. It was, it was, you know, sort of 30 different cognacs in this lovely little lab tasting room. And, and again, uh, this is not false modesty, but I'm not an expert. I don't, I don't know what, comprises a great cognac so so I'm the one who says I don't know what I like I don't know what I know but I know what I like or whatever the (laughs) I'm the I'm the novice but there is a place for the novice isn't there because not everybody who drinks spirits is an expert they just know what they like and that's the most important thing of all so there we are tasting this array of cognacs and there's there's one that Clive and I, so Clive knows a huge amount about cognac, I know nothing, keep coming back to, just keep going back to this glass and nosing it again. What is that? What is that? And the absolutely charming guy who's distillery was, is standing there very French with his arms folded and at this sort of little smile on his face, like, I know, I know, I know that you spotted something. And eventually he said, the trouble is that if that's what you want, there's nowhere else to go because that is not the best, but that's that's the one. So it turned out that this cognac, he he, he is the, the nth generation of the distillers who've owned this distillery for, for centuries. <clears throat> He'd been doing some renovation work in one of their barns and had uncovered underneath one of those great big tonnel that, um, that the, the spirit is stored in, a cask of cognac that his grandfather must have put there before the Second World War. A single barrel of cognac distilled, we think, in 1925, hidden away probably in the late 1930s, behind a wall of rubble to, to keep it safe. And then it's easy to say forgotten about, but either, for whatever reason, it was never un- never taken out. And A, it's the most beautiful story, you know, hidden from the Nazis, left to mature on its own for 93 years. But what's really fascinating 
is that in in the world of cognac, there's a lot that it's cognac is blended. You know, unlike the Scotch whisky industry, almost all cognac is blended. Mm-hmm. So you have all these barrels of maturing cognac, and you'll be constantly topping them up, putting liquid into demijohns, doing doing stuff, and just sort of checking what's going on. Vintageable cognac is is it's not unknown, but it's it's not the main part of the business. So there is a single barrel that's just been left. It hasn't had anybody checking it. It hasn't had anybody topping it up with anything. It's just been sitting there. So there's this barrel. It tastes absolutely magnificent. It has spent its entire life just sitting on its own, doing nothing. And and it's wonderful. It's just the most delicious, bright, fresh, slightly sweet cognac that has amazing balance, incredible aromas, and I as a novice can tell that it's something super special. We hear the story of how he'd he'd found it and just feel immensely privileged to have been there to taste it. And that he also agreed to sell us the barrel and which we then bottled and eventually released as our fourteenth release, which was the described as an old Dutch cognac because that means outside age. You can't legitimately claim it was a 1925 cognac. But it was also, for me, it was made the year my dad was born and it was bottled the year he died. So it's an incredibly romantic and special release for me. But it also led on to something else which we released last year. So, So this barrel of cognac is sitting, we think it was in an ex- Pinot de Charente barrel because of this, this sweetness that we could all identify when we tasted it. But what we didn't say until last year is that next to it was another barrel of, not of cognac, but of Pinot de Charente, even older, possibly 100 years old, tasting like nothing you've ever tasted in your life before. And I have actually here, I can show you. Um, Please, yeah, we'd love to see it. So, so Pinot de Charente. There we are. Look, it's so pretty. I don't know if you can see ah. the colour. So, Pinot is normally drunk as a sort of young aperitif. It's made from grape juice, which is then stopped with with grape brandy. So, it's not it's not a fortified wine, but it that's probably what it's most it's closest to. Yeah, very much a cognac production. It's only made at distilleries where they make cognac and we te- we tasted this thing which is dark brown and unctuous and sort of treacly and tastes of figs but it also has this extraordinary sort of savory umami taste as well and that was one of those sort of well this is a once in a lifetime thing we're going to have to buy it because <laughs> we couldn't bear not to but what do you then do with it do you buy it and bottle it as gifts because that's something we'll, we'll talk a little bit about later. And eventually, having sort of agreed that we'd buy it, we, we decided to, that we would release it as a small release with no particular, I suppose, this doesn't sound very businesslike, does it, on your podcast? The business <laughs> it's not very businesslike to offer something without any expectation of selling it. But in fact, because it tastes so utterly delicious, we have sold it quite well. And it's been the most fantastic story to tell, to, to my point about stories. But I genuinely hope nobody's thinking they're going to make any money out of their bottle of Pinot, but that they will have a moment when they say, we're going to drink this tonight because it's amazing. That is an absolutely romantic is the word that you use. It is a wonderfully romantic story and, and it overlaps so much of the, the story, as you as you mentioned, from your father's date of birth to, to, to his passing away uh, and then to not only discover one cask, but, but two and to decide what to do with them. The question I'd probably like to finish on, and I'm sure Foxy would have, might have one more, but the most interesting thing in a way is the challenges that this begets because as you do those really unique, unusual things, and yet you are trying to grow the company. Is there an inherent contradiction between the challenge of finding those really unique and difficult, uh, remarkable spirits and bringing them to a bigger audience? Because eventually, do you have to look for liquids and stories that are less unique in order to satisfy the volume that you need to grow? Or or am I misinterpreting Not the contradiction? Sure. 
Not at all. I think that is that is the the constant daily challenge is where is that where is the sweet spot? Where is the balance? And how on earth are we going to to manage that? And in fact, with our latest collection, we have seen there has been a really palpable step change in that in that we don't we don't have enough. So all of those three releases are sort of pre-sold. Now, it's a very nice problem to have, but it does raise the question that you've asked, Will, which is how are we going to meet demand? It's, it, you know, the, the, I think James always said that his ambition for the business was that we would be on allocation. Now, we have, we have quite a lot of releases in the back catalogue, some of which are not fully sold out, but the expectation with every release is that it's, well, it, it's not the expectation. Every release is finite. There are a number of bottles. Every bottle is numbered. So when it's gone, it is genuinely gone. So you've got to have that constant pipeline to, to satisfy the demand of the future. And I think, um, sorry, this is an incredibly long-winded answer, isn't it? Part of the reason for bringing Colin and the other members of the Assembly on board was to try and move towards creation as well as curation. So obviously pretty much everything we've done to date has been discovery, delight, bottle it, sell it. And then when Colin joined us and started looking into our inventory, the first first creation has come about as a result of that, which is that Colin created a blend of 500 bottles, 50-year-old whiskey that, that he created from the barrels in our inventory. And so that was our first, if you like, I mean, creation is an interesting word. He didn't create the whiskies, but he's a master blender. And this was an absolutely brilliant expression of his lifetime of skill. And that is something that we want to do with each of our assembly members is create something so so that each of them will, we will work with each of them in turn to create a, a unique blend which is a way of showcasing their particular skills and that there won't be the same pressure on discovery because what we're asking for is is please you know use your your incredible talents to create something that's equally unique but but doesn't need to have been found let's just say so that's definitely part of the future and then to build up our own inventory so that we have maturing inventory that will become future releases and i appreciate that that is not as it's not as romantic as a barrel of cognac hidden from the nazis (laughs) but but from a business perspective we have to future-proof the business don't we and that requires buying in advance and hoping that what we buy will eventually be good enough to go into our barrels Brilliant. Um, the only last thing I have to ask is if people listening want to find out more about Last Drop Distillers, where should they go? They should go to lastdropdistillers.com. <laughs> uh, where they'll find lots of information about obviously what you guys do, your releases, but they'll also find your podcast, which is called Remarkable, which I know has three episodes so far and is a wonderful listen. Really, how would you describe Remarkable to people? Because I would struggle to, to say what it's about, but I but I know it when I hear it. Well, I think what we, we say the Remarkable is conversations with remarkable people. So that gives you quite a broad, broad landscape to paint on, doesn't it? It's mm. People whose stories are fascinating. So whether it is Ben Saunders, who's a polar explorer, um, and talking to him about what it is like to be on your own for 70 days on a on an ice scape that there is nobody else on, and it's the size of Europe, let's just say. Or Alexandra Llewellyn, who makes these exquisite backgammon boards and poker sets about how she has brought her passion for, for artistry into and, and made a business of it, or a conversation with Colin about what it was like growing up in Orkney. And the moment, the moment well, I won't tell you what he says, but t- talking about his childhood was incredibly delightful. So I would say it's conversations, not interviews, 
I, I will just say that the the conversation that surprised me the most was the one with Alexandria. Um, I, I thought it was just wonderful. I've never played backgammon. I I can barely describe what a backgammon board looks like. But by the end of it, I was thinking, how much money could I afford to spend on a personalized <laughs> backgammon board? It was wonderful. And that is what's so lovely is that she is using her her incredible skills to tell people's stories. So there's a wonderful synergy there because I... I love the fact that, I mean, we met because she made us a backgammon board, which traces the story of those two old men and the last drop. And it's a real pleasure. Well, uh, the pleasure has been all ours on this occasion. So from Foxy and myself, thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Foxy. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, I think Rebecca is one of the coolest ladies we've had on the podcast. Uh, just ever since he said the Indiana Jones thing, uh, as we were teeing up the interview, like that's all that like plays through my head now of like crawling through abandoned warehouses and stuff, fall, rafters falling down around her just to get to that elusive barrel all the way back down the cellar. Yeah, and obviously she did say that that's the most romantic story possible, but all of the spirits that they release are highly, highly unusual. And we were lucky enough to be given. So um, Michael from Last Drop actually hand-delivered to me three sample bottles of their latest release. And and I have them here in my hand. Now, unfortunately, we've promised that we're going to taste them together. So I, I can guarantee I'm not going to drink them on my own. But there's a 20-year-old Japanese whiskey. There's a 44-year-old Glen Turret uh, single malt scotch. And there's an Ordage Petit Champagne cognac from a closed distillery, which was distilled circa 1950. So... I am exceptionally excited to do that. And I, I promise, I promise I won't be drinking them without you. Uh, I, I do appreciate you holding on to them for me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sign of true friendship. <laughs> um, but I do think that the business nature of, of how Rebecca has turned around an idea that uh, James and Tom had in their back garden, in their retirement, into what is a f- phenomenally successful global network of individuals is incredibly interesting. And she mentioned something about the assembly as well. So unfortunately, we didn't cover the assembly in as much detail as we might have liked. But uh, can you give people an idea of what she was referring to when she she mentioned all those different people she's working with? Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably an episode alone just in the assembly and and what they do. But basically, Colin, who's the, the master blender at The Last Drop, kind of called up some of his fellow luminaries in, in the beverage world. And they've kind of created a little bit of a a loose collective, I guess, for want of a better phrase, from the worlds of Scotch, American, Irish, Indian whiskies, cognac, rum, uh, and a few other industries as well. Two of the most famous ones, I think, are probably Richard Seal from Foursquare Rum and Barbados and uh, our, our very own Louise McGuane from JJ Corey, who are uh, an independent whiskey bonders here in Ireland who are doing some really, really interesting stuff in the world of whiskey. And it's basically all about sharing knowledge and insight at Cree. So I think this is where Last Drop kind of become a little bit more creators than curators, uh, leading to some really exciting releases, I guess, on the horizon. So we look forward to what Rebecca and Beanie are going to produce for us with the help of Colin and the Assembly. But I have to say it was a really remarkable interview. I I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, It was just fascinating. Just absolutely brilliant. Exactly the kind of uh, guest you want on a podcast like this. So... Uh, I, I promised myself I wouldn't say from the sublime to the ridiculous, but I can't help myself. We are going to do a total change in tone and style now as we depart uh, Rebecca's interview and we talk to Marty Duffy, who's on our desert island today. Foxy, can you tell me a little bit about Marty Duffy? Uh, I, I don't really want to. I think I just want to go straight <laughs> into this because whatever I say will not do this justice at all. <laughs> Um, the only thing I can I can promise people is we will put a link to the particular drink that he mentions in the show notes. So if you're wondering why we're laughing or what he's trying to describe, go to the show notes, click the link, and and you'll see an image of this particular beverage that he talks about. Because uh, you you might need a visual aid to go with this, uh, but we'll leave it to Marty to describe it. Hello. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, I'm Martin Duffy. I'm the North American brand representative for Glencairn Crystal. That sounds really impressive. It is. What do Glencairn Crystal do? 
Glencairn Crystal uh, produces some of the finest uh, whiskey glassware in all the world. And you manage that in all of North America? All North America, the United States mainly, Canada, some of Central America, and soon I plan on conquering most of South America. By mule, most likely. You've worked as a brand ambassador for spirits companies in the past. Many years, for almost five decades. How does this differ, being an ambassador for glassware versus a beverage? You know what's nice about it is I am the Switzerland of the uh, <laughs> of the whiskey world. I can go anywhere. I am Mr. Neutral. Nobody, you know, I can walk into any distillery and I am just the guy that you pour your whiskey into. Hi. Well, I... I'm always the guy you pour your whiskey into. <laughs> That's uh, no deal. But uh, now, yeah, I can, uh, you know, and everyone's happy to see the guy uh, from Glencairn because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a competitor for most folks. That's why I, I go to every whiskey event. I can circulate, talk to everybody and, and mm. hobnob with all the brands and they don't see me as a threat. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. For anybody who hasn't seen a Glencairn glass, they probably have seen it, but maybe they didn't recognize it. Could you describe it? Ah, okay, Glencairn glass looks like a pear with the top cut off or a fat bottom woman with no arms or legs <laughs> sitting on a tree stump. <laughs> Beautifully evocative, Marty, as ever. I would <laughs> expect no less. So it's very bulbous at the base, narrows, yes. and then it, it just straightens up. It doesn't fan out. Right. So bulbous at the base, uh, comes up, has a bit of a chimney uh, with a uh, not about an inch wide opening at the top to drive the aroma right up into the old schnazola. A little bit like a Russian doll with the head chopped off. Exactly. Just how the Russians like it. <laughs> so, Marty, you are on our desert island. You are allowed to bring one beverage with you. I'm, just, I'm going to assume you're going to bring some Glencairn glassware with you as well. So what is the one beverage you could not live without on, on your desert island? Oh, that's a tough one. Because like I said, it matters on the island. If it was, a uh, you know, if I'm in off of... You know, Tierra de Fuego, where it's a little chilly. It could be chilly down there, uh, where it's chilly. It's actually <laughs> chilly. Um, uh, I would probably bring a whiskey, right? Mm. So it'd either be my two favorite whiskeys in the world, my, like like my everyday whiskeys, either uh, Black Bush or Johnny Walker Black. Those have always been my go-to whiskeys. If it's tropical island though, and I had my druthers, if I had a like unlimited jugs of it, uh, banana daiquiris. Banana daiquiri. Ooh, they are good. A good banana daiquiri. Oh my god, I'd become a big girl drink drunk if I had my druthers <laughs> with banana daiquiris. Especially if you get a little banana as a dolphin garnish. You ever see those? No, you're gonna have to describe that. Uh, it's a banana. They take a uh, half a banana. You put it on the side of the glass. You put um, uh, the, uh, I forget what they use for eyes. They use, put little eyes on either side. It's a little banana. The little stem of the banana acts as banana. The dolphin's nose, they cut into that. They put a cherry. It looks like the dolphin has a little ball in its mouth. <laughs> and it's sticking on the side of the, the banana daiquiri glass. Which is usually a tiki mug. So not only that, but the banana daiquiri dolphin could also be your Wilson to your Tom Hanks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wilson! <laughs> Wilson banana daiquiri. I'm sorry, Wilson. Yes. There's <laughs> a little banana dolphin floats off to Plus see. Plus 20 or five a day. Like, you know, this is win, win, win. It's definitely the most fun drink that's been brought to the island. <laughs> That's just it. I mean, imagine, too. I mean, if I'm stranded on this island by myself, a banana daiquiri would definitely cheer you up, especially with the dolphin. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think we're going to top that on the island. Marty, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, 
I promise you, no matter what image you have in your head of what a banana dolphin on the side of a banana daiquiri looks like, it will not be representative of what you what it is in Google. It's I don't know if it's the creepiest or scariest or funniest thing I've ever seen dangling off the side of a cocktail glass. Definitely the most unusual garnish. Uh, listen, I, I, I can't believe I'd never seen it. It was just bizarre. And he was describing it as if we knew what it was. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And and as he was describing it, I went and Googled it, and I nearly, I nearly lost it. <laughs> <laughs> it is ridiculous. It is absolutely farcical looking. But I can see I can see why Marty go for it, you know? Uh, you can 100% see the appeal. But uh, if I'm a bartender, I do not want to be putting fake eyes on a fake dolphin that's made out of a banana regularly. With a, with a cherry. With the cherry, that's the that's the bit that really gets me. Okay, well, I can tell you though what Marty did mention was that if he was on the island and he would be drinking that, he be, might be drinking it out of a tiki mug. But it got us thinking actually about the history of glassware and why we use certain glasses for certain drinks. And actually, I think that's a fascinating subject. So it's something that Marty has promised us that he's going to come back on the podcast and we're going to do a whole episode on glassware. It'll be a wild ride. I can promise you that. Yes, no dolphins will be harmed in the making of the episode, but it, it will be entertaining. <laughs> okay, uh, so before we go, a final reminder for anybody who is interested in signing up or uh, sponsoring or attending our Leuven event, please drop us a line, bizbevpod at gmail.com, and you'll get details during the week. We'll see you in Leuven. Thank you for listening to the Business of Beverages. It's been our pleasure to bring you this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and recommend us to one other friend or colleague. As ever, we are independently produced and self-funded, so we appreciate your support in listening, sharing, or reviewing this podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, where we go by at BizBevPod. If you'd like to support us further, you can find us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash BizBevPod. So I'm delighted. <laughs> Do you have castanets? I'd love to see you with a pair of castanets. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs>